This is an ABC podcast. First, authorities in China are monitoring the outbreak of what could be a previously unknown strain of viral pneumonia. It's a very quickly changing situation, this one. We can now report that more than 100 people have been hospitalised in the city of Wuhan in central China in the last month, suffering flu-like symptoms. Uh, In Hong Kong, South Korea and Singapore, they've also had reports of suspected cases amid fears of a repeat of the SARS outbreak, which killed 800 people worldwide. That was what we heard on the 9th of January 2020. Little did we know what lay ahead. The lockdowns, the border closures, the quarantine hotels, the sometimes lonely deaths of loved ones, and the stretches of often significant parts of our lives spent in limbo. I'm Kerry Phillips, and in this episode of Rear Vision, we look back over the last three years to see what we've learned about COVID-19 and the virus that causes it, SARS-CoV-2. When that news of a new virus came through in early 2020, many of us were on summer holidays. Tony Kelleher, director of the Kirby Institute, a health research centre at the University of New South Wales, was in Bangkok for work. And so I was at meetings in early January with other people in the scientific community and you know it was clear that there was something that may be a problem or it might have burnt out but no one was sure but certainly you know particularly in Thailand with its proximity to China and in the end it was the first place to have cases outside China there was already discussion about whether this was going to be something that was big or something that was going to burn out and, you know, it was a flash in the pan. When it obviously became bigger than something that was just going to burn out, how long did it take for the virus to be identified? Was it something that was done quickly? You know, I think one of the incredible things about what we've learned from molecular biology and the range of people across the globe who can do effective molecular biology meant that this virus was identified extraordinarily rapidly and we were in possession of the full-length sequence which then allowed the development of the vaccines and the diagnostics very, very rapidly. The Chinese had obviously had the technology to do that very quickly and then I guess there's a separate story about how that information was released. But it's extraordinary how fast this virus was characterised. How different was it from anything that had been seen before? So I think one of the reasons things were done so quickly is that there are a lot of similarities between SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, and SARS-CoV, which caused SARS a decade or so earlier. So there was some facility in understanding pathogenic coronaviruses with pandemic potential. So, you know, I think it was off the back of the information that people already knew about how those and other coronaviruses interact with the epithelium, the lining of the lungs and the respiratory tree that allowed the rapid characterization and the understanding of the pathogenesis of this virus. By the end of December 2019, I think that they'd already had a a pretty good crack at doing the genetic code. And basically, it resembles a bat coronavirus. So it beats a coronavirus. They often cause respiratory and epithelial diseases. (laughs) 
Jeremy Nicholson, I'm the director of the Australian National Phenome Centre at Murdoch University in Perth, Western Australia. And this actually looked genetically quite similar to one of many bat viruses. Bats carry hundreds and hundreds of viruses, almost any one of which can potentially jump into man. So that needs to worry us a bit. But it also, when they looked at the genetics of it, it looked as though it had some bits of other organisms as well. Civet cat was one of the possibilities. So the possibility was that the, the virus had jumped from a bat in a market to a civet cat and then to humans. It's quite interesting, this particular class of virus, it can do a sort of recombinant division or rather you know, replication. So if you have more than one virus that's in an organism at the same time replicating, you can basically cross over the DNA or the, the nucleic acid and you get features of both virus. And that, that seems to be what's happened in the case of SARS-CoV-2. From a genetic point of view, it wasn't tremendously startling because there had been a predecessor, which is the SARS-CoV-1, which caused SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, which is like, from a respiratory point of view, a very nasty version of COVID-19. So the predecessor, which was in 2002, 2003, something like that, had only affected about a 1,000 people around the world, but it, it actually killed quite a lot of those. So it was actually a more dangerous virus. Genetically, it was actually very similar to sars COV-2, hence the naming of it. And the other virus that's that's known, which is quite similar to it, which is also a coronavirus, is the MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, which is also a very dangerous virus. So as soon as they got the genetic structure of this, alarm bells should have started to ring. All viruses change over time, and SARS-CoV-2 is no exception. I think the disease is evolving as we speak because not only is the virus evolving with all these variants, but our response to the virus is evolving, both as individuals and as a population. One of the reasons why this virus has persisted so well is because of its ability to evolve over time. The outward manifestation of that evolution of the variants. And that variation has really arisen out of the need for the virus to avoid what are actually quite effective immune responses to the virus. So a lot of the variation in the virus is uh, it's evolving away from its main environmental pressures. And that environmental pressure that we put on the virus as a global population is the immune response of those populations. So the main places where the current Omicron variants are different from the original Wuhan variants are all in the parts of the virus that the immune response attacks to prevent infection and prevent it causing disease. I think watching the emergence of these variants over time has been the most extraordinary journey in scientific terms. I'm Peter Openshaw, Professor of Experimental Medicine at Imperial College in London. I'm a respiratory physician, but a specialist in respiratory viruses and the immune responses two respiratory viruses in the nose and lung. You know, never before have we had so much sequence data which has been aligned to so much clinical information. And we've seen that during the first few emergence of variants, it was clear that what was really driving the variants was that each one that succeeded another was more highly transmissible. So it was being driven by shorter incubation times, by greater number of people who could be infected. 
And it was only really at the time that Omicron arose that we started to see a different pattern, which was that the sub-variants of Omicron were being driven by host immunity. So it switched from just being the virus transmitting better to being the virus trying to escape from the host immune response induced either by previous infection or by vaccination. It's hard to believe that just two months ago, this virus which has come to captivate the attention of media, financial markets and political leaders was completely unknown to us. The Director General of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adnanam Ghebreyesus, is meeting with 400 experts in Geneva, and it comes as the death toll climbs past a thousand. But until now, it's only been widely known as the coronavirus. Now there's a new name, COVID-19. Fairly quickly, the 12th of February 2020, the illness caused by this new virus had a name. And doctors, scientists and researchers around the world began working to understand its nature. With the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the important thing is, it's primarily in a class of respiratory disease-causing agents. But the thing that's different about COVID, and this is where it differs from influenza, for instance, is it has a lot more substantial systemic effects on the body. And so what that means is it can affect multiple organs. And if it can affect multiple organs, there's multiple possible symptomatic presentations of the disease. So in the original form, the Wuhan variant, as it's known, of SARS-CoV-2, it really expressed itself strongly as a respiratory disease, as its family would, would indicate. Um, but lots of other people had, they had joint pain, loss of the sense of smell. They had you know, a range of different symptoms. And not all of those are present necessarily at the same time. And the other thing that's, that's sort of unique about COVID is one, those symptoms can progress. So you can start off with one and you can then develop two, three, five, seven, whatever it is. And the more symptoms you get, actually, that means the more systemic involvement there is and the more serious the disease actually becomes. So the thing that's unusual about COVID-19 is its heterogeneity. Now, it turns out that I was one of the very first people in Australia to catch it, which is a really bizarre story because I actually went to a conference in, in Italy. And if you, you may remember in Europe, that was one of the first places that got outbreaks. And I came back to Australia and I thought I was just incredibly badly jet lagged. But in fact, I had COVID-19 and I didn't know it. And it was the fatigue that expressed itself in me. I didn't have any respiratory problems whatsoever. I was just completely polaxed with it. And that actually took a long, long time to recover. But other people who got it, it wasn't necessarily the fatigue. It was the extreme respiratory problems that was actually putting them in intensive care and ultimately, in some cases, of course, killing them. So it's the heterogeneity of, of COVID that is a significant part of this disease. So you can have different severities, you can have different persistence, and there are multiple organ systems that can be involved. So you can get diabetes, you can get atherosclerosis as a result of COVID, you can get liver damage, you can get gastrointestinal damage. It's almost no organ system that can't be affected. And they produce different biochemical effects, they also produce different symptomatic effects. Some of those can persist longer than others. And in many cases, what's worrying is that you can get long COVID without having had the severe respiratory disease to start with. And many people 
who wouldn't consider themselves to have long COVID are still very biochemically abnormal, even a year after they had the initial infection. So we call that occult COVID or long COVID, occult long COVID, it was hidden. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say you don't have to worry about it because, you know, for instance, new onset diabetes is one of the possible products of, of having a COVID infection. You can have diabetes without knowing it until it becomes really quite severe. The same is true of liver damage. The same is true as heart disease and atherosclerosis. And all of those things are accelerated or initiated by a COVID-19 infection. So this is what I was talking to the, the committee, this part, standing parliamentary committee on, on long COVID, is that there's quite a lot beneath the surface that we haven't seen. And you can't necessarily get that information from epidemiology studies or from questioning the patients because they may feel still okay. But if you look at their blood chemistry, you'll find it's not okay. And there is a need for further testing of the population to try and understand what the extent of that effect is in the general population, even if they weren't particularly ill when they caught COVID the first time around. A federal parliamentary inquiry into long COVID's received hundreds of submissions, and it says a couple of clear issues are emerging. First, how many Australians have long COVID? And how should the condition be defined in this country? Melbourne woman Rochelle Osborne says she's struggling with long COVID and one of the biggest problems she's faced is getting good medical advice. The first GP I saw just said time would help and then kind of made it seem as if it was more of a psychological thing, which was, was pretty upsetting. Long COVID has been one of the most frustrating complications to emerge from the pandemic. I remember when we got involved in setting up a cohort, and that was sort of June to July 2020, there had already been reports of people developing persistent sort of symptoms post-COVID who had acquired their infection in February and March. Greg Dore, I'm an infectious diseases physician and epidemiologist at St Vincent's Hospital and the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. So, it was not unexpected and people were sort of looking for it, I think. But having said that, there was still, and there still is today, a degree of scepticism around it. So even though there was a precedent for it, and even though we've seen you know, post-viral syndromes with many infections, we should have expected it. We should have been able to plan more effectively, obviously, for evaluation of it, research, developing healthcare services to address the burden of illness that we're seeing now. But I think we're all sort of caught up in the acute COVID crisis, so to speak, and how to respond to that. So it has taken a much longer time to get around to addressing long COVID. How can someone tell if they've got long COVID? How is it diagnosed? It's a difficult diagnosis because in many respects, it's a subjective diagnosis. So it's based generally on self-report of symptoms. So you know, the WHO definition is that people have to have symptoms that are present three months following the acute infection and have been present for at least two months out of that three-month period. Those symptoms can be a range of symptoms, so fatigue or breathlessness or you know, brain fog. So there's a range of different symptoms, but they have to be persistent for at least sort of two months within that three-month period. So those symptoms 
as symptoms are, are self-reported. So there's no readily available diagnostic test that you can run as a blood marker, for example, that gives you, you know, a higher likelihood of you know, long COVID. And that's one of the, the difficulties at the moment. And we're involved in some research looking at various biomarkers, particularly neurobiomarkers for the neurocognitive component of long COVID. So there's a lot of people searching for those diagnostic sort of markers, which are really important for patients to be able to be assessed adequately and to be able to sort of monitor to the natural history of long COVID as well. Who gets long COVID? Is it someone who gets the disease really badly? So there is an association between the severity of the acute illness and your risk of long COVID. So if you have a very severe acute illness, you're hospitalised, particularly if you end up in intensive care, then you've got a very high risk of having persistent symptoms. And that's not surprising, given that you know, most people who end up in intensive care have ongoing symptoms for a number of weeks, if not months. So it may be somewhat different to the other long COVID cases that we see, which can come from people that have very mild infection. So having said that the severity of the acute illness is associated, it certainly doesn't mean that you don't get long COVID if you have mild acute illness. In terms of other factors, some studies have shown that women are more likely to get long COVID than men. Having said that, men are more likely to get severe acute infection. So it balances out a bit. But in that mild to moderate sort of category, women appear to be more at risk of developing long COVID. We do know, however, that those people that have been vaccinated and then infected have a lower risk of developing long COVID. So vaccination is partially protective against long COVID. It doesn't rule it out, but it reduces your risk, probably halves your risk at least. One of the mysteries of COVID is that some people appear not to have caught it, despite living in close quarters with friends and family who became sick. I think it's very interesting that despite intense exposure, some people don't get infected. Why that is, is still a bit of a puzzle. We did a, a COVID challenge study back in the days before the vaccines were released and before much immunity had accumulated. So this was a unique study where we took the pre-alpha form of the SARS-CoV-2 and we gave a very low dose to fit healthy young people to deliberately study the infection and to see how long it took to develop and what were the characteristics of this infection. And in that study, I think one of the things which was most remarkable was how small a dose was required. It was equivalent to you know, a droplet of respiratory secretions, which was about the size of a red cell. That's all that was needed in order to infect about 50% of people. But 50% of those volunteers that were given the virus didn't actually get infected. So we're still trying to work out what it is that made that difference. I mean, in household transmission studies, where you have somebody in a household with COVID, then actually the transmission rate to people in the household is below 50%. So, you know, why it is that somebody gets it at a particular time and somebody doesn't, may be a combination of genetics and chance, but that's still really to be disentangled. It's a most important question because if we can understand why some people don't seem to get it, that may give us clues about how to prevent it in the future and how to prevent other respiratory viral infections. 
Quite a few countries, including Australia, began the pandemic with a zero COVID policy. That was what the border closures and quarantine was all about. But after the more contagious Delta and Omicron variants arrived, along with a rapid development of effective vaccines, everyone, including finally China, was forced to admit that we're going to have to adjust to living with COVID. I think we have to accept that the virus is never going to be eliminated. It's now going to join the legions of respiratory viruses that are transmitted from person to person. I think it's too early to say whether it's going to settle into being a seasonal virus, a winter virus. At the moment, we're seeing recurrent waves of infection which are not following a seasonal pattern. In the UK, we're hovering around a million to 1.2 million currently infected people at any particular time. It's not in any way going to disappear. I think the most important thing that we need to do is to make sure that immunity is built up in the population through vaccination, particularly of those who are most vulnerable, so that when they have their first infection, it uh, very much reduces the severity of the disease by preventing it from spreading into other organs. So being vaccinated does generate lots of serum antibody. It doesn't have a very good effect in terms of preventing the infection of the nose and, and lung, but it does stop it getting out to a large degree and very much reduces the frequency of, severity, of severe disease. So I think we have to keep going with the vaccines to maintain that immunity, particularly amongst those who are most vulnerable. Well, there's a practicality that, that life has to continue. And in that respect, we have to live with it and we have to accommodate to it. But that doesn't mean to say we just carry on as normal because the world is different now. And furthermore, when people say you've got to learn to live with it, that means that some people are going to die with it. Right. So when countries unlocked in a population that wasn't prepared for it, people died as a result of that. And actually worldwide, millions of people died because of that prematurely. And so there's also, you know, if you listen to the news when they used to be giving the daily statistics, and you know, that seems like a long time ago. It's only a year or so ago you had daily reports on how many cases there were in you know, Victoria versus WA or whatever it was. And people say, oh, you know, 27 people died today, but, you know, half of those had existing conditions. Well, you know what? Everybody over 40 has got existing conditions. And when you die because of COVID, it takes many, many years of life expectancy off you. So the WHO did some calculations on this and they found worldwide for those people that died, they died 16 years too young. And that's a hell of a lot of lost life around the world. In America, it was about 10 years too young that people were dying. So it wasn't just old people getting it and it, they were being taken out of the population. This has generally reduced the life expectancy of the human population. And the latest statistics showed it's about, about three years, three years of lost life on average. It doesn't sound like very much, but it's huge. If you bear in mind with all of the improved therapies, the disease prevention, preventive medicine, and all the other stuff, on average, it produces an increase in life expectancy about, about a, a month or two a year, right? So to knock three years off in one go is an extraordinary step back in time. In fact, we've gone back to the life expectancy that we would have had in about 1996. So COVID has not only individually robbed people of their lives, but it's actually robbed whole populations of 
millions of man years or woman years of life. It's quite extraordinary. If you, and if you think of it in that way, you, people ought to be screaming in the streets about it. Even though people are still getting COVID and dying of it, many of us have completely resumed our pre-pandemic lives. Despite the fact that the worst of it is probably behind us, is it really wise to think that this has been a one-off? How likely are we to find ourselves going through the same sequence of events with another virus? So there are thousands and thousands of coronaviruses out there circulating in virtually all animal species. I think that coronaviruses are remarkable in that they have managed to adapt to almost all species out there in the wild particularly amongst some species of bat, they seem to be able to carry a range of coronaviruses and other viruses without showing great signs of illness and without actually dying, but still being a potential source of infection that could spread into humans. So I think it's vital that research into animal coronaviruses is intensified so that we have early warning if there is a particular change in the genetic makeup of some of these viruses that might potentially threaten human transmission, but also to you know, watch other species as well as bats. We do need a lot of surveillance work so that we can anticipate. I think it's not only coronaviruses. The threat that we've always been most concerned about are the avian influenza viruses, flu A, influenza A, which you know, we know that a lot of these highly pathogenic influenza viruses if they do infect humans, cause a very high mortality. You know, H5N1, which is widely circulating and adapting very quickly to infect mammalian hosts, as well as a very wide range of birds, looks like it could jump into humans. And, you know, historically, H5N1 influenza has about a 50% mortality. You know, I think we were actually lucky with SARS-CoV-2 that in fact, the mortality is not that high. It could have been much, much worse. We mustn't drop our guard and think that because we've had one pandemic, that that reduces the likelihood of another. I don't just think, I think it's inevitable. We are bound to have that again. There's been something like 30 different zoonotic emergent diseases in the last 25, 30 years, 30 different ones. And there are, there are these ones that pop up and, and disappear. Ebola is a really you know, good example of that. That's a really nasty disease. If that gets out properly, then we're in big trouble. There's Zika virus, right? That's been increasing steadily for the last 40 to 50 years and is, is expanding its global coverage. And that goes hand in hand with global warming. So all these things work together. So global warming changes the distribution of animal species and viruses and bacteria and other things around the world. Population growth means humans are more likely to come into a contact with other organisms which carry bacteria and viruses that can get into us. And these things all work together to make the world a more dangerous place. And so pandemic preparedness ought to be almost at the top of every government's list of things to do because there will be another one. It's inevitable. So long as there's 8 billion plus people in the world and growing, there'll be more and more and more of these. And we need to get our act together to try and sort that out. Professor Jeremy Nicholson, Director of the Australian National Phenome Centre at Murdoch University in Perth. 
My other guests were Peter Openshaw, Professor of Experimental Medicine at Imperial College London, Professor Tony Kelleher, a clinical immunologist and immunopathologist at St Vincent's Hospital and Director of the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales, and Professor Greg Dorr, infectious disease physician and epidemiologist at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney and also at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Kerry Phillips, and sound engineer Russell Stapleton for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.